0: Hey everybody, welcome back to the show. This is As Lutheran As It Gets. As always, I am your host, Donovan Riley, joined as always by, well, what did you call yourself last time? The Predator? Uh, yeah, Predator. Producer, Producer editor. editor. That's right. Pastor Christopher Gillespie. Yep, tibbity-jibbity. That's right. Uh, if they want to get you coffee, Pastor, where do they go? Gillespie.coffee. Gillespie.coffee. What's the roast this month?
1: Uh, what's up this month? We have uh, Ethiopian... Mm-hmm. i like to keep one of those around when they're in season uh this is a washed ethiopian not quite as wild hmm. as the as the natural from last month but they're nice too uh a guatemala and a costa rica
0: yeah and nice that guatemala nice. blends like are the
1: ongoing Caribbean. ethiopian's yeah, always solid did I, send that to you? I can't remember i think so uh did I you know, know i sent you the tenebrae you got the, the that, is yes. that, that is delish
0: yes that is so delicious Mm-hmm. Yep. So go ahead, run over and purchase Pastor Gillespie's coffee, uh, fund his retirement or his children. So buy Shoes, one bag, one, buy one pound for every one of Pastor Gillespie's children.
1: <laughs> oh, I had a customer that orders eighteen bags a month. I, like that's it's, close. That's wonderful. <laughs> uh,
0: I was what was I? I was listening to an interview and apparently the claim <laughs> about Ethiopia. Right there's the church in Ethiopia that claims it has the lost ark of the covenant. Oh yeah. Up in the mountains. And a couple yeah, up in the mountains there. Apparently, uh, as it goes, the people that are chosen to watch over the Ark all uh, suffer from cataracts as a consequence Hmm. of of watching or guarding the Ark, however you want to say it. And apparently this has been documented. I haven't done enough research into it because I don't have that much free time. But those who have gone up to check into it, whether it's, a scam, tourist trap kind of deal. Right. But apparently those who have gone there say, yeah, the people that, that guard this church and supposedly the Ark of the Covenant is under the church or, or somewhere thereabouts, uh, they also from cataracts. Hmm. And uh, yeah, it's it's very interesting.
1: It's better um, than your face because, melting
0: off though. Well, it is, but the speculation then is that whatever is in the Ark of the Covenant is uh, irradiated. Ah, and that it's leaking radiation. And that's why when people approach the Ark in the Bible, the biblical account, that's why they were uh, destroyed.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so the face opened. of
0: God irradiated the tablets or something? That whatever is in the Ark, yeah, the tablets, whatever you want to they're say, not that in there they anymore, are probably, irradiated, right? That This goes back to the, the theory, because there's something called the Iraqi, what is that, the Iraqi, the Turkish battery or something like that? Mm. That we now know that as far back as Egypt, they were able to make batteries. Okay. True story. Really? They, yeah. That they would take like a pot and these are small about the size. I can't remember. It's a couple like 13 centimeters or something tall, but it's like a pot. And then they uh, figured out how to wrap a coil around it and generate electricity. Let me just do your job for you. <laughs>
1: I'm i'm here editing uh
0: or something Something, editing something else (laughs) let's see here i type in turkish battery i'm kind of afraid what i'm gonna find (laughs) no batteries yeah no doubt but yeah apparently and i've read this in other places Two archaeologists have dug this stuff up but the baghdad battery there it is not the iraqi or turkish baghdad battery
2: yeah turkish battery
0: there's all sorts of things on alibaba Right. The Baghdad Battery, or the Parthian Battery as it's known, is a set of three artifacts which were found together in a... It's a ceramic pot, a tube of metal, and a rod of another kind of metal. Discovered Hmm. in Iraq, and apparently these were used, as I said, to generate electricity. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, wrap your brain around that one.
1: (laughs) It was a Galvanic cell. Okay,
0: yeah. So this would be close to the metropolis uh, of... um, the Parthian battery, it was in Ctesiphon, around 150 to 223. So 150 BC to 223 is when this capital was around. And it is considered to date from either of these periods. So this battery they discovered is either from between 150 BC and 650 AD, these two periods, the Parthian and the Sassanian. Huh. Uh, no one knows really where it came from. <laughs> or even what it was used for, it looks like. But it, it functions as a galvanic cell or possibly used for electroplating or electrotherapy. It's all right, electrotherapy. Yeah.
1: Yeah, you could use this to uh, clean off your cast iron skillet. Exactly. Mm-hmm.
0: But it's just fascinating that, in, you know, before we even hit Jesus' birth, they had figured out batteries. Huh. So then then this guy recreated it after the second
1: second war and it worked.
0: Yeah. With grape juice Uh or vinegar. Right. Huh. So there you go. (laughs) We all learned something together. So anyways, the point being is that when we think of things like electricity, we tend to locate them in very recent times. Mm. And yet they were fooling around with, with electricity already in 250 BC or even before that. And then you extrapolate upon that that what do you do when you when you have irradiated rocks Hmm. when you have rocks that have uranium or in them oh yeah that was the point thanks right and that again extended contact with highly irradiated rocks as a consequence of that what does that do well it causes things like cataracts and cancer and other things yeah um and that and again this is all of course speculation and it's fun to speculate about these types of things because i think Actually, just on the other side of of having fun, just speculating and and playing what if, I think this, I was thinking about this in relation to this uh, interview I was listening to, though, is that we always tend to to divorce God from creation. Right. And then, and we were talking about this last night in adult Bible study. Like the divine
1: watchmaker kind of thing?
0: Yeah, exactly. That for Israel is really unique in the sense of they actually believe their God is camping out with them. Versus all of the other gods of all of the other people, their gods don't occupy the earth. They live outside of the earth. Yeah. and Remember, then
1: they, uh, what was that, Elijah's taunts with uh, the yeah. prophets? You know, your god's out uh, taking a dog out in the in the, out wilderness. in the outhouse, yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: Uh-huh. And that this is the thing. So, when the quail, for example, land and and Israel is able to feast on quail during their time in the wilderness – we tend to divorce the natural world for, or the created world from the creator. And this is something we've been talking quite a bit about in um, confirmation lately, because we're in the creed and specifically the first article that when we talk about creation, where the word create creature means you're created, you have a maker. And the very fact that you say I'm a creature means you have a creator, but everything made by God is a creature. And Dr. Luther picks up on this wonderfully in this Genesis commentary that the sun is a creature, grass is a creature, you and I are creatures, we're all creatures of God. Right. And therefore, all of creation is bent as an instrument of salvation, is an instrument of God for our, intended for our salvation. And I think as a consequence, especially of the rationalist movement, we've pushed God outside of creation again. Like you said, like, and, and we treat him like a divine watchmaker and Carl Barth, this famous reformed theologian in the early 20th century. He was famous for this, that God is outside our reality and Jesus is the touch point between God and our reality. Hmm. And that for Bart, the only contact that we can ever have with God is Jesus. And as a, it, as appealing as that may be to say, well, God entered into our reality in the form of Jesus it completely negates all of biblical theology regarding the first article regarding creation. Yeah, That God not only creates, but that he is in creation. And this was troubling right. for the people Israel encountered. It was troubling when Jesus showed up. And obviously, since I was talking about Karl Barth in the last century, it's still troubling for us. We still argue about this. And so when we say things like, the rock was irradiated, you know, things like that. Mm. That's not superstitious. That's not uh, supernatural. That's just the natural world. Yeah. And these things happen. <laughs> and God uses his creation as his instruments of salvation. Not to say there's a nuclear bomb inside the Ark of the Covenant in Ethiopia, but rather to say God uses all of creation. He bends all of creation towards our salvation.
1: Right.
0: Which is something that Dr. Luther refers to in his commentaries on Jonah commentary on Jonah sorry his lectures on Jonah
1: so I mean Bart Bart wasn't entirely wrong in that maybe the best way to (laughs) for us to uh, relate to God or to connect with him is through Christ right yes well revealed right Right, the the distinction
0: between God hidden and revealed
1: ah nice well done I know right
0: right did I not segue like a master that was a black belt (laughs) transition (laughs) for for those of you listening uh the the topic of this podcast is the hidden God and uh, we are going to be discussing the writing of one Mr. Robert Kolb, professor at St. Louis. Is he retired? Is Bob retired yet? He's retired. He is retired. Yeah. yeah. I just, I when I met Bob, he was old. And so much <laughs> like my grandma, Bob's just always been old to me. <laughs> so I never know if he's teaching or not teaching, if he's, where he's at. Right. He just shows up, makes jokes, tells me something that I didn't know about Luther before, and then disappears into the night. Yeah, he's Professor the, Emeritus. There we go. Thank you. Professor Emeritus at St. Louis Seminary. Retired and in 2009,
1: re- so we're a little behind the news on uh, that one.
0: Yeah. I never bothered to ask him. I'm always, you know, whenever we get together, it's always for some Luther conference. Right. But Bob, Robert Professor Kolb, he has written, what, two, 3,000 books? <laughs> <laughs> it seems like. I just... It's, a, it's
1: his bio. is the author of several books, and then there's, oh, uh, there's a few.
0: Several is a gross understatement. Let's put it that way. Yeah. He's written... hundred articles... Yuck, yeah. I think just oh. the last five years before he retired, I swear he wrote like four books. He was on mm. fire there at the end. But uh, this uh, book is from uh, the last, what, 10, 15 years? Oh, Bound Choice. Uh, yeah, Bound Choice. Yeah, that was, or, it was no, after. Did this come out while I was still doing my graduate
1: work? It was after 2000.
0: Yeah, it was for sure. Because I remember it was published when I was doing my graduate work uh, and came out right towards the end of my dissertation. And therefore, I. Was, I will find uh, out.
1: I will be the producer.
0: I got it. So you don't. Robert keep... Cole, Bound Choice Election in Wittenberg Theological Method from Martin Luther to the Formula Concord, two thousand five. Hmm. There you go, Lutheran Quarterly. That was wordy. So Professor Cole is a friend of mine, and I love him dearly, and he's one of. Well, not only is he one of the best Luther scholars running around, he's one of the last Luther scholars running around, it seems, at least from that generation of Luther scholars. Oh, you mean the ones that were good? And there's really nobody. Yeah. <laughs> the ones, yeah, the ones who are good. Uh, the post-war generation that that studied abroad and came back and brought all that with them. But Dr. Cole wrote this book on bound choice. And the difference between, in this book between other books on the bondage of the will, and there are not many, Um, maybe two or three actually, uh, is that he looks at it from the perspective of the faculty at Wittenberg Uh, versus Luther debating Erasmus. Mm -hmm. That as a, and this is the thing, Dr. Kolb is a pure historian. He's a church historian. He's not a theologian, quote unquote, theologian who does church history or the history of doctrine. But Dr. Kolb is an actual church historian, pure historian. And therefore, when he looks at topics, even theological debates, he looks at it with a historian's eye. Ah. And so rather than ask what was Luther talking about in his classroom, he would rather know what was, the, what was happening on the faculty when Luther was lecturing on Genesis, for example, and to look at the context yeah. rather than the, yeah. de, the, docu- the doctrine, the debate, whatever it might be.
1: Well, and that's the historic method. I mean, the-
0: exactly, exactly. And so for this, he doesn't look, like I said, at Luther's debate with Erasmus and then draw conclusions, but instead asks when Luther did this, what was going on in the faculty? Was the faculty teaching the bondage of the will in the same way that Doctor Luther was? Was Doctor Luther an anachronism? Was he on his own when it came to this? Right. What was you know was there debate tension on the faculty? What was happening? That's so it's an interesting book. Yeah,
1: and that's interesting because I, I was listening to an interview with a philosopher uh, who studied Heidegger, and apparently with philosophy, a lot of people uh, approach it just analytically, like just sure. the idea. Uh, and they divorce it from the person and context and faculty and, you know, their interaction with other people. Well, especially, it's like,
0: uh, so her especially point Heidegger. Was, you, yeah, there are you people that,
1: that talk about Heidegger without talking about him being a Nazi.
0: Right. <laughs> it's like, you can't, you know. Not really, because the entire rest of his life was a direct consequence of that. Mm-hmm, yeah. Of him becoming a Nazi and thinking, this Hitler guy is onto something. Right, exactly. And then after the fact, and realizing too late that he had made a horrible mistake. Um, And even though it was before the internet, he wrote a lot Hmm. in support of the Nazi party. And I have told the story, I think on this podcast before about Heidegger after the war, his best friend was a French poet and they would go for walks in the park and they would just sit and discuss the fact that everything that they saw growing was a consequence of all the ash that had fallen, Uh. right? And yeah. therefore, everything that was growing—the flowers, the trees—everything was was growing out of the the ashes of the dead. Wow! And that's heavy. The effect that had on him philosophically was he became a mystic,
2: hmm.
0: a Christian mystic, and consulted with. Uh, don't quote me on this. Google it. But I think he consulted with a Russian mystic,
2: hmm.
0: a kind of uh, Rasputin kind of character. But that, yeah, before the war, he was a philosopher. He was an academic. And I think that's the thing about Heidegger. Same thing with Wittgenstein is that Wittgenstein wrote his dissertation in the trench in World War I. So imagine that, right? He walks in and submits his dissertation and says, here, I wrote this. And they said, well, where's this coming from? And he said, well, I wrote it while I was under fire in the trenches. Wow. And uh, they didn't want to accept it. And because and, they assumed it was hastily written and written under stress, and then he he impl- a you know safe assumption. I mean, no, it's a, it's brilliant. It's it's, it's brilliant bad in, in the kind of it's it's he's like a Vulcan Wittgenstein. It's amazing. Yeah, and Heidegger was like that before the war, and I think that's what influenced the way in which he supported the Nazis. Is he looked at it as an academic would look at it. From thirty thousand feet ah, okay. but he wasn 't looking at it from the street level, and therefore he wasn 't considering the consequences of what was happening and Then when he did recognize the consequences, it was too late right there was that momentum so I mean but there 's an analogy with
1: uh, theology, as there is with philosophy oh, of course of just approaching yeah. these things in an abstract analytical way, and not as mm-hmm. real, concrete, uh, like right. interacting with life
0: <laughs> well, one theologian made the comment that theology is supposed to be fun. It's play. I'm sorry. He said theology is playtime for theologians. It's, if it's analytical and dry and everything's at right angles, you're probably not doing theology. It's probably an ideology, actually. But that for a theologian, theology is for fun. It is to play. We play in the scripture and we play in the works of church fathers and others. And the reason we can do this is because we're free in Christ. And the words of scripture bind us and the words of our doctrine bind us in such a way that we've talked about this before, but people don't understand without boundaries, you're not actually free. (laughs) Mm. But when the, when there are boundaries, for example, when I know that God loves me for Christ's sake, as first John says that not that we loved him, but that he loved us and gave his son as a blood sacrifice for us, knowing that sets you free to love your neighbor. Right. Because, oh, I don't deserve God's love but yet he chose to love me in this specific way. And since I'm not deserving of that love, it's all gift. It's free gift. I am now free from having to worry about, is there a scoreboard over my shoulder? Is God Hmm. judging me all the time? And the answer is no. His judgment is Jesus crucified. And therefore now I'm free to, to love my neighbor for who my neighbor is in the present tense and not think, well, I've got to score points with God by being nice to my neighbor. Yeah. You think and people, so if I invite some –
1: go ahead. Do you think people think of theology more as, oh, um, well, I don't know, like just dangerous? Like we might get too close to, to God
0: and, you know,
1: some, yeah, some, If some, only. Yeah. I think
0: the if you look at all of human history, whoever got closest to God flicked his earlobe. Hmm. That's as close as you can ever get to God is flicking his earlobe. Yeah. And I think you're, that's a good point is that I we get so caught up in the theological – vehicle that we don't recognize that we're not climbing some ladder getting closer to God because we've got the right theology. Yeah, we're going to figure them all out. (laughs) Right. It's not as though I'm propping a ladder up against the side of God's house and I'm going to climb up and sneak a peek in the window while he's changing clothes. That's not the way this works. But that's the way the old Adam thinks. This is why when you read Genesis and you read about Jacob at Bethel, I am climbing Jacob's ladder came directly from someone not reading that correctly. Yeah. One of the worst hymns in church history.
1: Well, it's not a... a, Because it's not biblical. (laughs) Well, Christianity is not a mystical religion. I mean, Mm -hmm. there is
0: mystery, but that's not the same thing. The mystery is Christ. And, well, the mystery is, how can God be a man?
1: Yeah, it's too good to be true. That's what's a mystery.
0: (laughs) Right. And the fact that Paul even says that God has always been with us since the beginning of creation. like He created everything, and yet within his creation, he locates himself. Mm Mm-hmm as both giver and gift, which is the unique aspect of what we claim is is a biblical teaching, is a, a prehistoric biblical teaching. And that when we began to record our history and write it down, this is what was delivered to us through the work of the Holy Spirit, that our God is not on a mountaintop. He's not outside the universe. He's, excuse me, not outside reality he's located, and this is the problem that we have with God uh, that Dr. Luther talks about in his Job lectures. It's not that God's too far away that bothers us. It's that he's too close. In fact, as Dr. Luther says, he's closer to us than our next breath. That's our problem is that we, this is why Israel is always lapsing into the worship of other gods. This is why Christians chase after hyphenated gods, right? We worship Jesus, but we really dig buddhist teachings too or we like jesus but you know the stuff in the quran about not gambling and stuff is pretty good too
1: or let's worship god under a golden calf because that's that's
0: more present that's more eminent exactly it's more present it's more popular we don't really have to worry that much about what other people think about us (laughs) yeah you know it's interesting too we were talking about this last night in, in bible study i pointed this out all religions locate their when their gods do visit us they usually come in the form of an animal and this is universal, actually. If you look at the Mayans and the Incas, if you look at Egypt, if you look in Buddhism and folk religions, the gods always come into our reality disguised as usually an animal. You think of Zeus coming as a bull or a golden swan. Right. Other gods come as snakes or serpents. Other gods come as cows. Uh, it just depends. on in, in the Indian myths, God comes as a coyote. or owl, or an eagle. It's a very strange thing that universally, completely disconnected from each other, all of these cultures just decided, yeah, when the gods do visit us, they come in the form of these animals. But I think the reason for that is because the animal is both the source of our life and the thing that can take our life. Mm. It's both predator and prey. And this is why all religions are fertility religions at base. Because... My entire life, if I lived in the third century BC, my entire life from sunup to sundown is find food
2: mm-hmm.
0: and reproduce. Yeah. That's it. So I need all someone hands on deck, right? <laughs> all hands on deck. I don't have time to go to the mall and play video games. I don't have time to sit on the, on the couch and Netflix and chill. I don't have time for any of that stuff. Why? Because if I don't find food, we don't eat. And if we don't eat, we die. Mm-hmm. The problem is when I go out looking for food, there's other things out there that can eat me. And what do you do with that? What yeah. do you do with that as a person in the second, third century BC when you're out hunting and there's lions and bears and all kinds of predators and you're competing with them for food? Maximize same your success, time, right? So, you maximize your success, that's right.
1: So have as many children as possible because then you've got some expendable.
0: Well, that too, but you need hunters, you need gatherers, oh, we you need people them. who are going to go to the river and get the, get the water, you need people who are going to take care of the village while we're gone, you need people that are going to have my back when we're out hunting lions, mm-hmm. you have all that. Plus, who's going who's to take over the village when I'm gone? But who's no. going to carry my legacy forward?
1: Isn't that what you have illegal immigrants for? <laughs>
0: right, exactly. But in a tribal society, no, because those illegal <laughs> immigrants would be predators, You're, they would be considered. Well, they would be you too. You're nomadic or whatever. Right, Which is, bringing it back around to Hitler, Hitler was a germaphobe, right? Mm-hmm. And that we now know from his writings that he looked at the Jews and blacks and gypsies and homosexuals as bacteria, as germs, as contagions. Yeah. And that's why he does what he does, that the base of his ideology is Germany is a body and the body has been inundated with these bacteria, these contagions, And the Jews are the contagions, the gypsies, and so forth. And therefore, just like a body, the only way to heal the body, to cure the body, is to rid it of these contagions, which is what he does. I'm not kidding. This is what he does. Uh, By the way, and I'm not drawing a point of comparison. I'm just drawing a point of comparison. Uh, President Trump actually is a germaphobe also, and he talks this way. I'm not saying he's Hitler. I'm not comparing him to Hitler. Don't get me messed up. I'm just saying he's a germaphobe in the same way that Adolf Hitler was a germaphobe. And president trump donald trump he also has this this kind of mindset um this is why i just read an article that he only eats mcdonald's because he's afraid of being poisoned
1: isn't mcdonald's poison oh which is
0: which is profoundly (laughs) profoundly (laughs) ironic on so many levels i know they only eat making fast food because i'm afraid of getting poisoned they're, they're making great strides i know they are is that what no they're not to are just the figuring out better ways to mask the fact that they're feeding you sugar it's it's not pink slime anymore but <laughs> right because any any chicken without bones in it it's still safe to eat uh, that's all right they figured out how to grow meat in a lab now so we do have lawyers, that's what's coming don't next we? What's that? Se-
1: do we have lawyers lined up in the secret lab in case we get sued, I, I don't. Of remember. course, of oh, course. Okay,
0: but don't worry. Like I said, McDonald's and other fast food restaurants are now working with researchers who have figured out how to grow meat in a lab. Oh yeah, that's the future. Clearly, it's it's the present. The future is present tense. Like they're already making it. They've successfully made it, and now they're just figuring out how to market it to people. Because the biggest hurdle is not that they can make it; it's selling it to people.
1: Yeah, because they know it's it can taste the same as that
0: patty. No, that that's sell. what they say. Everyone who is they've tested this with everyone has said it tastes like meat oh i believe it so it's just a matter of marketing but think about it then think about your mindset if you think of the world and you think of you know people as either a a germ a disease a contagion or something that's helpful that's going to make you keep you healthy in a relationship that's one thing but think about that as a leader then of a village or a tribe or a nation Mm. Then you see interlopers, you see foreigners as germs, as bacteria. And they need to be gotten out of the system so that we don't get sick and die. Most institutions function this way. Yeah. You have an institution, it has a it has a, a rhythm, it has rituals, it has Uh, rubrics, it has tradition, the whole culture in the institution, and any threat to the institution from inside or outside is treated as a contagion that must be flushed out of the system. Okay. But this goes backwards thousands and thousands of years to when we're kicked out of the garden, and Cain famously says, yeah, but you do realize there's people out there that are going to kill me. (laughs) Why? Because everything out there beyond the tree line is a predator. Let's just assume it is, because you know, it could be just the wind moving through the tall grass, or it could be a lion. Are you going to take that mm-hmm. chance? Yeah. No, of course not. In fact, I just watched a, a video the other day. Uh, I on Instagram, I subscribed to this uh, "Nature's So Metal" because it's, it's what's <laughs> called. And uh, catchy title. It's a great first article. Fallen creation uh, channel be- account because. For everybody who says, oh, bears are so cute and cuddly. And oh, I wish I had a baby, <laughs> you know, all that stuff. Go, go to the Nature is Metal page on Instagram and watch, you know, it, it, like they posted the one where the, this couple nursed this uh, squirrel back to health, this baby squirrel. It had gotten injured or something. So they nurse it back to health. They take it out in the yard. They put the squirrel on the side of a tree so that the squirrel can climb up the tree. The squirrel goes maybe six inches before a cat comes out of nowhere, snatches the squirrel off of the tree and is gone. And all you hear is the woman screaming. (laughs) Because in case you don't know, folks, your cats, they're predators. Then they kill Mm. millions and millions of birds and other rodents every year. They're carnivores. So think of it in those terms then is that when you go out into creation, after the man and woman rebel, after we've fallen into sin, instead of trusting your creator – to care for you and protect you, instead of being able to lay down with the lion and hang out with the wolf and play with the wolf and put your hand into the hole of the adder, now all of a sudden, all of these animal friends that you used to have are now looking at you and saying, hey, got to eat. <laughs> yeah.
1: We're talking about this with uh, with you know, dogs because I mm-hmm. have occasional interaction with these golden retrievers, you know, and they're sweet dogs, right? Right. Comfort uh, dogs. We're talking about, Yeah. Oh, that train them for that um but you know it's not unheard of for them to go outside their training right you know well that's not a great like a, not not like uh you know i don't know think of a dog that can just flip uh well i don't want to flip spig- a switch any breeds yeah where they, where they just <laughs> yeah where they'll just bite you you know and then that's it
0: oh sure any dog will that. do that, depending on how territorial they are. Yeah, well, that's the point. But it's a good. But here's a great point that you actually, you, you kind of set up for me. It's like T-Ball. Is that this is what happens when people decide they're going to stand in the place of the creator. Uh-huh. All uh-huh. dogs came from wolves. Mm-hmm. That's right. <laughs> okay. So the next time you see a chihuahua, right. that chihuahua is a descendant. It's the same species as a wolf. That's what happens when we play God. <laughs> we make chihuahuas. And again, I dig chihuahuas. Nothing wrong with chihuahuas. If you have a chihuahua, God bless you. I'm a big dog kind of guy. I prefer mastiffs and larger. Um, I'm trying to talk my wife into letting me get an ocelot. She grew up with I cats. I like and the I'm name like, you know, of it. But... The only cat I would get is a jungle cat. And uh, when we lived uh, in Woodbury in an apartment, the woman that lived down the hall from us, she had an ocelot in her apartment. And uh, they stand about, mm, this one was about two and a half feet at the shoulder.
1: That's a big cat.
0: So when you would she would set it up, it would jump up actually. It would leap up on in the laundry room in the in the building, it would leap up onto the folding table. So when you walked into the laundry room and you opened the door, you would just encounter this cat's face, boom, right there in your face. And unlike a small cat, when you look into the eyes of an ocelot and they don't the eyes that look back at you, they don't blink. It's it's a gut check kind of moment because you realize this is a big cat. This cat can mess me up if it wanted to and I'm locked in a laundry room with this cat now. I don't know if I'm comfortable. And, you know, the woman said, oh, she's harmless, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, mm, not the way she's looking at me. I don't think she is. Maybe to you. But, yeah, that's the only way I could own a cat is if it was a large jungle cat, which would end badly for everybody. Yeah, you can't declaw a cat like that. Well, you could declaw it, but it's still got two-inch fangs. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) it's not (laughs) – Either way, dude. That would Um, would change the uh, animal dynamic in a house. (laughs) (laughs) A little bit. If you had dogs and then you brought all of a sudden this cat that's three feet tall, just bring this cat that's this 40-pound animal into your house.
1: That truly would be the the king or queen of the house. It would, truly.
0: It would be the apex predator in the house. Probably eat the dogs, actually. Um, But, yeah, I mean, that's the thing is that when you look at creation in faith, you can say, yeah, it's all gift. Um, But I also have to contend with the fact that there's things out there in the dark that can eat me, that want to eat me, that are actively hunting me. In fact, just right where I live here in Minnesota, we have coyotes and foxes that walk the riverbed, especially in the summertime. And when they hunt, they try and lure dogs and cats into the woods. And inevitably, every summer when I'm sitting on the back deck at night, I hear a cat or a dog go down every time. Because those foxes, or coyotes in particular, the coyotes are the worst. Um, Because they're like, hey, buddy, we're cousins. We're first cousins. Why don't you come and play with us over here in the woods? And the dogs are like, okay. And then the dog goes to play with them in the woods and they eat the dog. That's the world we live in. And I think that's why, going back to it, that's why we tend to elevate and venerate. Actually, this is Paul in Romans 1, right? That we we exchange the creature for the creator. And Mm -hmm. therefore, we worship the things that are not God-like fish. Reptiles, birds, animals, and if you think of it in terms of not, you know, not where we're at right now, where I'm in a house in a fenced-in yard, hmm. surrounded, you know, cleared the land so I can see something coming from 50 yards away. Right. You think before that happened, where you were just sleeping on a dirt floor in a hut or in a, in a lean-to or whatever it may be, or living in a cave. Everything's a threat. Yeah. Everything is a threat to you. Yeah. And do you believe in God? Yeah. But I also believe that that thing out there with the glowing eyes in the dark can eat me. Mm. So what are you going to do about that? Well, that's the point. And that's why you treat everything as a contagion, as as some sort of virus that's trying to invade. And the problem is in the present tense, when we still behave that way, when we, we kind of form up in our teams, we become all tribal. All right. And it's red team versus blue team or my team versus your team, team girl versus team boy, whatever it may be, you know. It, it always ends badly because it's stupid. I was kind of <laughs> into Teen Wolf. Oh, Teen saying- <laughs> Wolf. <laughs> Teen Wolf. Not not Teen with an N. Team. T A M. Deep Michael J. Fox reference there. Yeah. Classic. There was a new one on MTV, but I couldn't bring myself to check it out. No. Oh. Not There's only the one risk. Teen
1: Wolf. That's right.
0: But. Uh, so yeah, I mean, in, in, like I said, yeah, we've we've tried as much as possible to step outside of the food chain, and we've done a pretty good job here. But uh, just go to a foreign country where you mm-hmm. don't speak the language mm-hmm. and see how comfortable you feel. Right, right. Don't just go for a walk in your local park. Walk twenty miles into the woods in northern Montana, for example, northwestern Montana. Walk twenty miles into the woods, and then tell me how comfortable you are. Right. It's a whole, it's a whole different, it's a whole different reality. And this was the problem that I had with, uh, and still have with Henry David Thoreau and Walden Pond is Thoreau was a spoiled rich kid, moved out of his house, moved into a cabin next to a lake. The lake, by the way, was surrounded with uh, with other cabins. Emerson lived right down the the path. Emerson wrote in his own diaries how annoyed he was by Thoreau (laughs) because Thoreau would constantly come by his house and bother him when he was trying to write and think. So you have Emerson who moves out into the woods to escape people. And here comes this this punk kid, Thoreau, asking him all kinds of questions about philosophy and literature and wanting to have coffee and smoke a pipe. And Emerson's like, leave me alone.
1: That's kind of the point, right, of your
0: cabinet. So you, you have to be careful, kids, when you read Walden Pond to understand that Henry David Thoreau pretty much lived in a park. Like the modern equivalent of a park is where he lived. He wasn't living out in the woods roughing it. And so most of what he writes is just romantic, childish gibberish.
2: Hmm.
0: Sounds nice, though. Yeah, it sounds nice, exactly. Uh, But like my lit teacher taught, taught us in college, and she's the one who related the story to me. And uh, gave me the homework to go do the research on it. Uh, when she read Walden, when she was in college, and she was in college in the late '60s, so she was very much in the hippie movement and the countercultural movement. She decided she was going to go sit in a pasture, amongst you know in nature, amongst the wildlife, and read Walden Pond to get the full the full effect, right? Mm-hmm. And so she's sitting there reading it, and all of a sudden, all of these cows just start walking by her, because it turns out she sat down in the middle of a cow pasture. <laughs> And so now all of a sudden she's surrounded by a herd of cows who are defecating and chewing their cut and coming over and sniffing at her. And that's what soured her on Walden. (laughs) This romantic idea of nature Right, is that when she actually was surrounded by nature, she didn't like it too much. It was kind of stinky and and gross. And if you've ever been licked by a cow, it's, yeah, exactly. It's not something that you, you quickly run out and try to repeat. It's like being grabbed by a tentacle or something. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. Just wow. So anyways, and to segue back into what we're actually here for on the podcast, or not, who cares? It's is our there, podcast. Uh,
1: just <laughs> shout out to Eric Brown, if you're still listening. Congratulations. <laughs> Pastor Eric Brown.
0: For making it this far. Thank you, Pastor Eric Brown. And go listen to Pastor Brown's podcast, Gospel Boldly, the Gospel Boldly podcast. Oh yeah, it's
1: really great with he and the, and Thomas.
0: It is. I, it, when, when he is at his best, I would definitely say that Pastor Brown is at least a C plus exegete. <laughs> Now we'll find out if he's listening.
1: <laughs> uh, we love
0: you, Eric. We love you.
1: There, At the bottom of uh, this, of the post on uh, on higherthings.org, you can uh, click and send an email. That's right. <laughs> In fact, you can share your
0: favorite anime with Pastor Brown. Uh, we would he's accept a... donations to go off the air, I think. There, there we go. That's right. <laughs> for the right price, we would stop talking for good. <laughs> I'm open to negotiate what that price may be. That's right. But you're going to have to start at 5K, I'm just saying. So, really what we've been discussing is, and I want to circle back around to Bart because you kind of alluded to it and mm-hmm. then we we didn't really address it, that Bart said the only point of contact between God and humanity is Jesus. And that God isn't a part of creation, only Jesus enters into this. Kind of like if the universe were inside a globe, a snow globe, and God is holding the snow globe, and Jesus decides, I'm going to enter into that snow globe.
2: Mm
0: to tell us God's holding the snow globe and we're inside the snow globe. There's a little door in the bottom, right? Right, exactly. And so just tell me what you want me to tell the father and I'll go tell him. Now, Bart was half right. But what Bart did not clarify because he wasn't a Lutheran is the distinction between the hidden God and the revealed God.
2: Hmm.
0: That Jesus is God revealed, preached and worshiped. This is how God wants to be preached and worshiped in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Everything outside of Jesus is kind of open to speculation because we don't know what God is doing outside of Jesus. Right. Because as even Jesus himself says, you know, my father causes the sun and the rain to fall on both the good and the wicked alike. This is what Peter's referring to as the graces, plural of God, the graces of God, plural are, an atheist can be rich, successful, powerful, and influential. An atheist can be an upstanding member of his community or her community. It can be a great person. Some of the, my favorite people in the world are atheists. Um, I've had, like I've said before, uh, off air, I have atheists who attend church on Sunday and agnostics who come to attend Bible study. And we have wonderful conversations and they're righteous people. Yeah, They're just not forgiven. Or I should say they've rejected forgiveness. They are forgiven yeah. in Christ's death. We call that objective justification. They are, they are forgiven in Christ's death, but they reject that forgiveness. Therefore, they reject what we call subjective justification. And... That's why I say that, that God is the one who gives all... God is creator. All creation is the instrument of God. So even the atheist, and I would say especially the atheist, can serve as a warning, as a kind of canary in the coal mine to the church. Because atheists are great at calling out false idols. Yep. And if we're not so arrogant that we think that our theology is so good that we can't be wrong, we might listen to the atheist once in a while and go, hmm, does God really need our money? no, God doesn't need our money. Our neighbor needs our money. The church needs our money. Why does the church need our money? To pay the bills so that the gospel can be preached. Hmm. But in the end, God doesn't need your money because if the church closes, the building gets shut down, God will find somewhere for the gospel to be preached. He'll locate his house wherever, whenever the gospel is preached, period. He doesn't stand on ceremony. And so, I think we get hung up too much on that, trying to, like we were talking, to start off talking about, trying to rationalize everything as if God wants our correction. Oh, right. That He's just waiting for us to figure it out, break the code, so to speak, crack the biblical code.
1: Yeah, I remember the laments in the congregation when I was serving that, uh, you know, if we don't do something, you know, we're going to close. You're like, well, okay, right. it's probably true. Right. Uh, <laughs> you know, if you want to take all the credit for everything that happens here, sure, uh, sure yeah, you'll
0: fail. That's all right. Well, the painful part of it, you and I were talking off air before the podcast about this, the painful part about being a Christian, especially a Christian within any institution, whether it be your local congregation or a broader church body like the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod is, the mechanism of salvation is death and resurrection, not I'm kind of alive and now I'm more alive. Mm -hmm. And for an individual... not dead yet. (laughs) I'm not dead yet. I'll be dead by Thursday. Um, That for any individual who trusts in Jesus as Savior, that's hard enough as it is. But an institution, like we were discussing earlier, an institution will treat the gospel like a contagion. Because the gospel announces you were dead, but now you're alive in Christ. Yeah. And oh, by the way, everything you do is meaningless outside of Christ.
1: Yeah, and the first <laughs> principle of every institution is self-preservation, right?
0: Self-preservation, exactly. Yeah. And the gospel is an automatic, immediate threat to that. Because the gospel says, well, unless you're dead, I have nothing to say to you. <laughs> the gospel says, you actually, you know, you don't, you don't matter. You're, you're just a tool. <laughs> right, exactly. Versus the institution, any institution, organization, which says the infinite growth is the whole purpose for us being here. Uh, you, again, environmentally, you see this, that corporations don't really care how much oil is spilled into the oceans because infinite growth is all that matters. We can sell off all of our national parks and wildlife lands to oil companies for fracking because all that matters is infinite growth, money. That's all that matters. Right. It doesn't matter if we destroy and, and drive you know, whole species extinct, so long as our bottom line is increased by 15% this year. So any organization, any institution that functions in this way that we've got to constantly be growing, we've got to constantly be making more money, is eventually going to reject the gospel. Because the gospel says you need to die in order that you might live. That doesn't lend itself to infinite growth. And it's not very profitable either, by the way, to say, okay, Harry, I just want you to know uh, that if you do well at your job, uh, when we have our annual review, we're going to probably kill you. Yeah, right. (laughs) But don't worry, you'll be raised from the dead. (laughs) That's your Christmas bonus. Harry's not going to be, I don't think Harry's going to take the job. I think Harry was eyeing up that corner office in a raise, right? So we have to be careful, I think, as Christians, especially for us as pastors, we need to be careful that we don't dislocate God from his creation, the creator from the creation, but likewise that we don't turn into romantics or mystics and try and find signs of God in creation that we can follow, in fact, you think of things like the wedding at Cana, Jesus feeding the five thousand, him healing lepers. We latch onto those stories, those events, and say, "Why aren't there miracles today? Where are those miracles today? Where are those signs today?" Well, I want one of those, you know, Jesus actually condemns people who look for signs. <laughs> And Paul does too in First Corinthians, just aping Jesus, parroting Jesus. Sorry, parroting Jesus, not aping him. You know, Mary came that, to
1: Jesus and said, hey, Jesus, do that thing that you like. to Right, exactly. Do. Yeah.
0: That maybe the purpose of what Jesus does isn't to say, hey, here's proof that I'm the son of God. Although that is a part of it or a large part of it, or maybe the only reason for it. But maybe it's to point out how worthless these things are. Mm-hmm. Because here's the question that I've started asking. After Jesus turns water into wine... After Jesus heals lepers, and people see this, this is all public, how many people actually leave everything and follow Jesus, even after he says no more miracles? Yeah. Nobody. Nobody does. So you can say, hey, I would really appreciate if God would raise my grandma from the dead. I would love my grandma Margaret to come back from the dead. That would be phenomenal. The problem with that desire, that prayer is, one, my grandma Margaret would have to die again. And I don't ever want to have to see my grandma have to die and go through what she did when she died. And secondly, would I be any more faithful as a Christian if my grandma Margaret came back from the dead? Hmm. Maybe for three months. I'm going to give it three months. Yeah. I'm impatient. That's the rich man in Lazarus too, right? Right, exactly. You know, if this man came back from the dead, you still wouldn't believe. So it's an interesting distinction that Jesus does these things just to prove he is God, because only God can do this. But on the other hand, he's also doing it to prove and to show, I could do this all day. And by the way, this is also Satan's temptation. Turn the rock into bread, throw yourself off the temple and show that the angels will catch you. And I will make you king of the earth if you worship me. And he rejects the very things that we demand of our God.
2: King of the which world. Which
0: is proof. I want to be king of the world. I want to be safe from all harm and danger, like we were just talking about. And I want bread on my table every night. I don't want to have to work for it. Hmm. And if you don't do that for me, then to hell with you, Jesus. I'll go find a different religion. Or I'll just swear off religion altogether. So it's very interesting to me that as a pastor, when we discuss these things, like the miracles, quote-unquote miracles, which in Greek is the word sign. Hmm. I have a I have a problem with the translation of that. In and of itself, that we shouldn't translate it as miracle, because that throws us off too. Yeah, it's a loaded word, it's, right? It's very loaded. It. Yeah, but rather, Sameon is sign, and what is it a sign of? Well, what does a stop sign represent? It represents the law. What does Jesus's signs represent? Well, they represent the fact that he's God. <laughs> they point to the fact that he is God. Signs point to something, so a stop sign points to the police and the law and speeding tickets. Jesus doing the turning water into wine points to his the fact that he is God. And yet, even though they, all of this points to him being God, all they can think to ask is, hey, wait a minute, I thought we, uh, we saved the worst wine for last. This is the best wine. Hmm. But that's the problem that we have is that we want to find God wherever we look for him or her or it. And then once we find our version of God, it never really pays off. In the end. You see this all the time in church, like you were saying with your congregation. Just adjust,
1: then adjust your expectations, right?
0: Right, that there is only three points of specific contact for us as humans, as baptized sinners. There are three points of contact where we can say definitively, God is in the house. Baptism, Mm -hmm. the Lord's Supper, and the gospel. That's Mm it. (laughs) He sends you a preacher with a specific message. I've been talking about this a lot lately with people to kind of, because it's that time of year, we have our annual voters meeting coming up and I always read my call documents at the voters meeting to just do the annual sobriety check in case any of you forgot, or I forgot, here's what you called me to do, right? Here's, here's what you expect me to do. Here's what the district expects me to do. Here's what my synod body expects me to do. So if we have any, you know, debates or there's any questions you may have or confusion, everything outside of my call documents is just my opinion. And you can take it or leave it. Yeah, it's no more or less valuable than anybody else's opinion, and usually less. And so, by doing that, what I'm I'm basically pointing out is, as your pastor, I have a very finite responsibility. It's very it's a very narrow pointed responsibility: baptize, administer the sacrament, and declare the gospel of Jesus Christ to you.
1: And really, your usefulness is pretty
0: in a in a in a vertical sense is is limited to that, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, because if it, you I stand can in the so, pulpit you, and I point at you, or let's say I stand in the pulpit and I point at one of your children, mm-hmm. and I say, if you want to see the face of God, there's the face of God. Hmm. And I don't qualify that statement at all. That is a true statement, by the way. Dr. Luther says that constantly, right? That we are the hands and masks of God. But unqualified, I'm going to end up, you know, we're all going to end up worshiping your child.
1: Which kids are pretty cool, though.
0: They're pretty cool. I, let's heard, give, I heard Naomi, Gita earlier, let's, right? Let's, she's, yeah, she's... you did hear Gita earlier. But let's deify one of our children and see how long that <laughs> that lasts. Yeah. And, and in fact, if you want to know what happens when you deify your child, read about Cain.
2: Hmm.
0: Because they thought he was the savior. <laughs> and that's the problem that we have when we try and find God where he doesn't want to be found. Uh. And I think this is also a key point, going back to theology is for fun, is that when we take ourselves too seriously, we all of a sudden start taking God too seriously. Mm. And I don't mean that in a flippant or dismissive way. What I mean is God is an artist. He is a creator. And all you have to do is look at the creation or just read a little bit about physics or Mm. about microbiology and just behold the elegance of a cell or the way that the cosmos operates it's amazing yeah <laughs> and yet if i were to worship god because of the way in which the constellations move and a meteor hits my backyard and kills all of us what what do i what do i do now right it, or there's a tornado or a hurricane or a snow cyclone like they had on the east coast last week what what is a snow cyclone was i don't that, even was that want what they it yeah i mean that... yeah they called it a snow cyclone <laughs> Snow cyclone Sounds awesome. It's like a hurricane I mean, come except on, with man, snow. One or the other. Uh, not It's not, from a distance it sounds awesome. But <laughs> But and oh, by the way, from a distance I quoted the other night too. It's a Bette Midler song. It's a terrible song, but in the 80s <laughs> that song, I bet you it was sung in more churches. God is watching us from a distance. <laughs> That's Ugh. creepy. It's super creepy. God, the the stalker. But this is what ends up happening. And I've made this joke before too, that the hidden God might be hiding out in the bushes with a sniper rifle waiting to get you. Oops. Or he might give you a raise that allows you to buy a bigger house in a better neighborhood.
2: Hmm.
0: Or he doesn't like you. So you live in a trailer park and you can't, you can only eat twice a day. You can't pay the bills. But if you go looking for signs of God's favor or judgment, you might be surprised by what you find. Yeah. And and most of the time, you're not going to be happy with what you find.
2: Mm-mm.
0: It's like my professor used to say, 80% of the time you can worship God according to the law. It's just that other 20% that's horrific, that's just terrible, that just crushes you, crushes faith. And he called that worshiping God through gritted teeth. That when you worship God according to the law, you don't get Jesus, you don't get grace, you don't get forgiveness. You just get do more better. Yeah, right. Well, when a grizzly bear runs you down and starts eating you while you're still alive... There's no do more better. (laughs) There's just done. You're done. Well done. done. Yeah, well done. (laughs) It's like this hunter I follow on Instagram, Remy Warren. They were out hunting and uh, this brown bear charged their camp. Hmm. And in case for those of you who didn't grow up in the woods, I grew up in the woods in northeastern Minnesota on the Iron Range in the boundary waters. Um, Black bears move incredibly fast. Yeah. Like 30 to 40 miles an hour downhill fast. Brown bears move just as fast on flat terrain. In fact, I just watched a video where a brown bear chased down a deer to give you an idea of how fast they are. This brown bear was on them before they had time to do anything. And what ended up happening, thankfully they all survived, but the bear came at them and one guy hit the bear across the face with a walking stick,
2: Hmm.
0: which was at least, and there was, and like Remy said, there were enough of them in the hunting party that when they scattered, it confused the bear. If there had just been like two of them, they probably would both be dead because the bear would have, would have locked in on their, like, there's, there's my kill versus there were over, there were six or seven or eight of them. And therefore when they scattered in different directions, it confused the bear for a second, which gave them the time to pick up the gun, grab the walking stick. But what happened then is that when the bear got hit by the walking stick, it took off and it hit another one of the hunters, flipped him up in the air and he landed on the bear's back. (laughs) (laughs) And so he's riding down the side of a mountain on a bear's back, a brown bear's back uh, for Uh, over 100 yards, right? And they find him in the bushes and everything like that. Now, if you ask those men, where was God when this happened? Their first answer is not going to be, well, he was here with us in our suffering. (laughs) It's going to be, he was at a distance. God is watching us from a distance. Or, exactly, he was with the bear that day, right? Is that really the God you want to worship? Well, you survived, so maybe yes, this time. But what if next time the guy who hit the bear across the face with the walking stick gets mauled to death by the bear? And then you, and then Sunday comes around, and you go to church for his funeral, or you don't go to church because he's not a Christian, so he doesn't have a Christian funeral. Now you're just left with questions. Why did this happen? Why did he have to die? Where was God? Yeah. Or just Again, if, God, if, just straight up. Right. If, God, if, if your God is nature... Or the God of nature, that is an extremely violent and unforgiving God. Very fickle. But, but I think in, in, our, in our first world post-industrial living environment where we've basically, like I said, stepped out of the food chain, it's easy for us to romanticize nature and romanticize God and romanticize, quote-unquote, blessings and so forth. But you just go back 150 years, really. And not even that. You can go back 100 years to 1917, when my grandma was growing up, they didn't have electricity or phones or any of that stuff. They didn't have a car. They didn't get electricity until 1931, where my grandma lived at. Mm. 1917, when you ate, you went out in the woods and you hunted for your food in 1917. And you went to, if depending on where you lived, you went to the store once a month. Yeah. Period. If that. I think my grandma, she said they used to go to the store once a month because it was, what, maybe two hours walk. Wow. You know? So that was close in those days, obviously. But that was that's what you did on Sunday because you were going to town for church. And when you were in town for church, you'd go to the store. Yeah. Uh, but if the store wasn't open because it was Sunday, you made a whole weekend of it. I have old timers around here who talk about going to town on weekends where you'd go and you would camp in the park. Everybody would do that. You'd go to town, you'd camp. There'd be like a festival or a fair or something like that because everybody's together. And then you'd shop and get all the things you need. Then you go to church and you would go back home.
1: Do you think that... the that the turn towards you know God is nature or in nature or something like that yeah. is is this desire to have uh, a God who is more wild and you know unpredictable and because- because so much of what we 've done with theology has kind of domesticated him too oh hundred percent right? mm-hmm.
0: i think that's I think that's that's the best point you 've ever made on this podcast, oh. even though we 've only done like ten of these episodes that 's a fantastic point is that we are constantly trying to domesticate god mm hmm We've done it to our theological heroes. Go back and read Luther. Not not classroom Luther. Read Luther's letters. Read his correspondence. Wow, they're crazy. Yeah. He is a wild, untamed... He's a savage. Because it's the 15th century. <laughs> These people thought bathing spread disease. These people are savages. They wrote with feathers. <laughs> like, like, Luther condemned Galileo and Copernicus. Okay? <laughs> so wrap your brain around that one. Because... He also thought that, that mice died and were raised from the dead every spring. And that's who he was. He also yeah. thought that his neighbor growing up was a werewolf because his mom told him that. This is the world that Luther lived in. He was a savage. And we like to treat Luther like he was a Victorian or a 20th century kind of guy, but he's not.
1: He was so Katie is
0: Katie yeah. is not a liberated woman. <laughs> For right. her time, she was a liberated woman for sure. She ran the household, but she did it out of necessity, not because Luther was liberated. Right. He wasn't a feminist. He was just so preoccupied that he didn't care about the house going to hell. Katie did. And so I do this in my own house. That's, I'm speaking anecdotally here. I'm looking at my own reflection in the well of history. I'm so occupied that if my wife didn't take care of things... yeah. My children wouldn't have shoes.
1: It'd be, like, it'd be like Katie when she married him and she found, you know, years worth of laundry. <laughs> exactly.
0: Exactly. I'll wear the same pants five days in a row. I don't care. If there's no stains on them. Well, if right. I'm, right. They don't smell. It, it, I, right. If I don't have to visit people or be out in public, whatever. Yeah, exactly. They don't smell, spray a little freshener on it when I leave the bathroom, whatever. Because I'm a man. And <laughs> put me out in the woods, I'll be like Luther in no time at all. And uh, I think this is a part of my, uh, we're going deep now, but uh, I think this is a part of why I have so much trouble fitting in, in, in organizations and groups, because by nature, I'm just not capable of being tamed. I've tried, I've tried super hard. I've spent the last 20 years in the church trying to behave myself (laughs) and, and, and I have, I really have. And try to fit in, and I've jumped in with different groups to try and fit in. I've joined different branches of the church to fit in. I've done everything I could. Create your own groups, yeah. Create my own groups, and in the end, all I ended up being was miserable. Mm -hmm. Because I just, I'm not that way. I'm just not wired that way. God didn't make me to be tame. And much like Mister, Mrs. Beaver, again, I'm, I'm not, I'm not safe, but I'm good. Yeah, that's right in an in a earthly, horiz- uh, horizontal sense, not in a vertical sense. I'm not but, you know, And
1: actually, I had a, a wise uh, older pastor say this to me. I'm starting a vacancy uh, a couple of weeks. And he was just... you know, We were talking a little bit about their past, the congregation. He's like, yeah, just be yourself. Exactly. Uh, Within okay. reason. Well, that's right. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean... Within right. the boundaries of your call documents, be yourself. Right, exactly. It's too... It's, one, it's too much work to try to be somebody who you're not... Uh, But we're talking about like practices and just kind of
0: general behavior and that kind of stuff. right? But how many people you know, clergy included, are always trying to be a personality for whoever they're in relation to at that time? Yep. And then when they're alone, especially I see this a lot with retired people, maybe you have too, or maybe empty nesters too, that they've spent so much time being identified for being a parent or being a pastor or whatever it is. They're so tied up in their vocation that then when that vocation is at an end, they actually have no personality. They're lost. Mm-hmm. They don't know who they are. And so I think that's really wise advice to say, within the context, within the boundaries of your call, be yourself. That right. way, if the congregation doesn't like you, you can get out of there before it gets toxic.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And if they do like you, if you do fit in with it, now you know from the from the get-go, yeah, this this is going to work. Yeah. We, we have a personality. And for those of you listening, I think this is important that... The congregation does, over time, take on aspects of the pastor's personality. And likewise, the pastor takes on aspects of the congregation's personality. But like any relationship, it does take time. Mm -hmm. And if you're not willing to forgive your pastor's foibles and faults, and the pastor's not willing to forgive yours, then it's not going to work. It's just not – short of an act of God, an act of, like, absolute repentance, which happens all the time. Happens to me on a daily basis, catechetically speaking. Boom, Lutheran reference. Um, It happens. But nonetheless, just be aware of the fact that your pastor doesn't come in fully formed and that you need to learn about... I talked about this the other night with a woman that I was training with. There, I made a jujitsu reference, $10. Nice. she was asking, because all, four of, all, four, all four, four of my five children are now in jujitsu, And mm-hmm. she was asking about them being in jujitsu and, and so forth and so on. And I said, we got to the point of parenting. And she was asking me, how do, you, how do I control them? And the first thing I did was laugh. Control? <laughs> I'm like, God gave me children just to control me. I don't oh, know fair. what do you mean, control my children. Mm-hmm. They're like me with less boundaries. But I said, what I've learned as a parent and this is just my opinion, this is my wife's opinion, this is how we parent. Rather than tell my five-year-old how to be a five-year-old and tell my 11-year-old how to be an 11-year-old and apply the same measure to all of them, well, this is the way that your 15-year-old brother is. So this is the way that you as a five-year-old have to behave. Instead, Uh, what we do as parents is say, how do you need me to parent you right now as a five-year-old? How do you need me to parent you as a seven-year-old, an 11-year-old, a 15-year-old, an eight-year-old baby? I can't yell at my baby for crying at me in the same way that I would scold my 15-year-old for complaining about having to take out the garbage. Yeah. That and, would make me a moron.
1: And, you know, it might be a little antiquated to say so, but uh, girl versus boy, too. You don't respond oh, 100%. the same way. You know, father to this daughter is, is different than than mother to
0: daughter, all those. No, of course it is. My daughter thinks that Annie is a moron. <laughs> She worships the ground I walk on. Mm. So, for example, Annie will ask her to do something and she'll argue with her. I'll walk in and say the exact same thing Annie just said and she'll say, okay. Nice. Likewise with my boys. My oldest, he adores me. I love him more than life itself. But nonetheless, if his mother asks him to do it, he'll do it. If I ask him to do it, he'll get around to it. <laughs> and so I was saying as a parent, the, but you know how I learned this is from being a pastor.
2: Yeah.
0: Is that rather, when I walked into this congregation, I thought I believed because I had taught seminary students as a graduate teaching assistant how to be pastors. I know what it means. I know. I've read books, dude. I know how to be a pastor. That's right. And I was gobsmacked right in the face by my congregation. This old German Lutheran congregation, a lot of farmers who you can't tell them anything. Mm -mm. I can't change the axle on a tractor. So what good am I? Had that conversation the first month I was here. True. True. What, what God finally showed me was, rather than tell them how to be Christians, <laughs> as if I've got all the answers, rather ask the question, how do you need me to pastor you right now? And what's interesting mm-hmm. within, within my experience then is that as soon as I started asking that question, most of the conflict in our congregation dissipated. Yep. It just it, it was painful at first right because now all of a sudden it wasn't a hostile relationship within the congregation it wasn't a one of confrontation or conflict but rather me stepping back and going okay why do you say that or why do you question that or why are you angry at me or why aren't you coming to church anymore tell me how to be your pastor right and essentially what I'm talking about is humbling yourself
1: yeah what well, you have to realize that pastoral ministry is a, it's a service industry yes you know it's and it really it is. is whether you want it, to admit it or not it is i we don't we don't consider it customer service, but actually it's very similar.
0: Well, Just, in this con, in, yeah, again, in a capitalist society,
1: yeah. Take, take care of, you know, take care of, take care of your people, be right. responsive, communicate,
0: right. you know, ask, and if you, listen. If you don't think your congregation is influenced by capitalist society, uh, how often do you advertise?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: How often do you pay the local radio station or newspaper to advertise for your church? Yeah. Website, Facebook pages. You know? Yep. You are a capitalist. News stories,
1: when you have an event,
0: all that kind of course, of, stuff. Yeah. of course. And I'm not judging and I'm not saying it's a negative thing. I'm just saying, be sober about it. Accept <laughs> except the limitations of being a human being and accept the limitations that, yeah, your personality, the congregation has a personality. And for the congregation and the pastor to, what do you want to say, enjoy one another as gifts mm-hmm. rather than as burdens. Mm-hmm. At least in my experience, my own opinion on that is you got to ask them what they need. Don't tell them.
1: Yeah.
0: Likewise with, with kids. Don't tell your kids what they need. Ask them what they need. And then, and then when they do it, like I said to this woman I was training with, when I pay for jujitsu because the kids want to be in jujitsu, <coughs> excuse me, and then they say, I don't want to go tonight. Tough. <laughs> yeah. You said you wanted to go. I'm paying for it. And now you're going to learn what discipline is.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I don't mean discipline in the sense of you're grounded. I mean, discipline in the sense of even when you don't feel like doing something, you do it because you know, it's a benefit to you. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of the way we run it as parents. Well, a lot, a lot
1: (coughs) of parenting is, is habit formation, right?
0: Yeah. hundred percent. And recognizing each one of your children is a little person that's figuring it out. And there, but by the grace of God, we all go. Boys and girls are different. 15 year olds are different than eight week olds. And yet the universal truth is they're children and they need a parent. Mm -hmm. And so in the midst of asking, how, how do you need me to parent you right now? I still have to say things like you need to eat because they have us on file at the hospital. (laughs) You can't die of starvation. They know that you're here and I'll get in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. So it is, it's, and that's why I was saying to this woman is it's difficult. It's difficult to be a parent because at the, on the one hand, you do want to be sensitive to this specific child and treat them as an individual. But on the other hand, you still have to put boundaries around them because they're children. Right. And left alone, they will burn the house down. My children will anyways. Yeah. Or cut the dog's tail off or any number of things. So bringing it back around, then eventually we are going to come back to this. And and actually everything we're talking about does relate to Kolb's uh, book. The danger of trying to locate God where he doesn't reveal himself. Is all of what we've been talking about up to this point. Mm-hmm. Is that to try and worship God where he hasn't revealed himself as God for you, key words there for you, is that you end up in conflict somehow. You end up in conflict, in conflict with a brown bear. You end up in conflict with your own brothers and sisters in the church. You end up in conflict in your own household. Yeah. And when you do it in the name of God, I think it makes it that much more violent because as you said, we try and domesticate God by trying to control the world around us. And we start within our own household. I can control my house. Therefore, I can control what's outside my house. Hmm. And that's why we we talked about this in previous episodes. Private property is just a fancy way of saying, I've extended my personal space outward to the Hmm. fence line. I can control that now. Or I have 10 acres. Well, that's my personal space too. I'm just extending it out further. Now, when you're a tribe or a city or a nation and you want to extend your personal space out, well, now you run into other people who have personal space and that's how wars start. (laughs) Right. Your dirt is less valuable than my dirt. And I want your dirt because I need more space for me versus everything's a gift. Everything is received as gift from the giver of every good. And therefore, whatever you receive, give thanks. Yeah. If you live in a trailer, give thanks. If you live in a mansion, give thanks. Whatever it may be, because it's all gift. And in Christ, whether I'm mauled to death by a brown bear, live in a mansion, serve in a congregation as a pastor or sit in the pew on Sunday, it's all gift because yeah. it's all from God. And however God has chosen to use these instruments for my salvation, the salvation of my neighbor, it's still a gift.
2: Yep.
0: And I don't know how how God is at work outside of Christ. I can speculate. Once in a while, maybe I'll catch a glimpse but this is why Dr. Luther says the Holy Spirit hides his work from us so that we can't take credit for it. <laughs> no doubt. Because that's what we do. We have an expression for that. It's called Hindsight's twenty twenty. Exactly. Exactly.
1: Oh, now so I that's... understand.
0: <laughs> exactly. That's right. Oh, right. I shouldn't have put gas on the brush fire before I lit it in a high wind. Ah, Got yes. it. Ah. Lesson learned. By the way, my fire pit is now a birdbath. That's the consequence of, <laughs> of me getting burned, second-degree burns on my head been there done that let's not do that again no don't do it again exactly and the best way to prevent me from doing it again is just to fill that hole in with dirt and put a birdbath in there and it's great too because everybody who comes to church they see that birdbath they chuckle they still chuckle to this day it's been over a year since it happened they still chuckle every time they see that birdbath so we all we all have a good laugh and by we i mean they
1: Mm -hmm.
0: at your expense so let's dive into this this is page 36 of kolb's book on bound choice we didn't even get to my favorite comic book artist. I was going to have a conversation about that too. So write in, comment. I'd like to know who your favorite comic book artist is and why. Also, what's your favorite comic book series? I only ask because I've been looking lately for a new comic book series. I've been reading the old, my old stuff again. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just, there's so much stuff. There's so much media and there's so much. And, and I don't even have time to play video games anymore. I'm so busy. And uh, I've got three video games I, and they're all really long fallout 4 the mm-hmm. witcher 3 and mm-hmm. a gta 5 haven't touched them played through a little bit of the witcher played through uh fallout 4 but got called away and uh my son erased my fallout 4 file on the ps4 yeah uh, again how do i best parent you right now well it's not <laughs> throttle you that's for sure um but it was all for battlefront 2 so i give him i give him a pass. But yeah, write in. I'd like to know who your favorite comic book artist and comic book is, and your favorite uh, video game that you've been playing lately. But let's dive into Kolb's book, Unbound Choice, page 36. Luther took the hidden God seriously for a number of reasons, which is what we've been talking about for the past hour. Luther took the hidden God seriously for a number of reasons. Without the admission that there is more to God than meets either eye or ear, Transformers, God could be tamed, measured, managed within the realm of the human ability and possibility to judge. Woo! That's fat. It's a lot going on there. It's a high fat content sentence. That's a long sentence too. That's a very Lutheran sentence. Yeah. Let's see. What is that? That's one comma, two comma, three comma, three commas. <laughs> so let's, let's back it up and go through it slow. Luther took the hidden God seriously for a number of reasons. Without the admission that there's more to God than meets either your eye or your ear. Meaning just because you see, just because you hear, doesn't mean you've got the entirety of God, the fullness of God. In fact, as we're told by Paul in Colossians, the fullness of God dwells in Christ. Yeah. Without the admission that there is more to God than meets either eye or ear, God can't be tamed. No. Oh, I'm sorry, God could be tamed. Yeah. There it is. So if God were nothing more than what I can see or hear or taste or touch or feel, more most important, feel, if if that were God, then you could be tamed. He could be tamed. Domesticated. He could be measured. He right. could be managed all within the realm of human ability and more importantly, the possibility to judge God. Now, what, what Dr. Kolb is referring to here is what's called theodicy.
2: Mm.
0: And it's, that's a very recent thing as far as popularizing. And it came out of the Enlightenment. And what theodicy is, is that before the Enlightenment, the way that we thought of God is, what, how Paul phrases this in Romans, for example, in courtroom language, God is the judge Satan is the prosecuting attorney, we are in the defendant's chair, and the paraclete is the defense attorney for us. And Satan brings the case, presents his case for why we should be damned to hell. God says, that's a good case. You make a very compelling case, and I have to say, I agree with what you say. And then when God goes to pass judgment on me or you, Jesus stands up and says, "Uh, your honor, may I have a moment to form a rebuttal? And God the Father says, go ahead, my son. And Jesus says, rather than condemn him, drop the gavel of judgment on him. I'll take his place. Drop the drop the gavel on me. Judge me in his place. And that's what God does. Now, imagine, though, that you're frustrated with God. You don't feel very positive about that courtroom analogy. You want God to defend his choice that your neighbor got mauled by a brown bear or your wife died in childbirth or a hurricane wiped out your entire town. So what we do then is we take God out of the judge's chair and put him in the defendant's chair, and we put ourselves in the judge's chair, and we say to God, you defend, you justify to us your decision to make let that happen. Yeah, right. If we judge God by what we see and hear, that I watched my wife die in childbirth, that I saw and heard this hurricane, this this tornado tear my entire town apart... When I saw these things happening, all I could think to ask is, how could you let this happen, God? Versus the old dude in Texas that I have talked about when I was living down in Louisiana, we were driving around Texas and the guy drives by us in the the Cadillac and on the back at the bumper sticker says, Jesus bought my Cadillac, (laughs) right? Both of them are wrong. (laughs) And yet both are very compelling to us well They're very what, appealing to us
1: because we we inherently want to define what is evil what is suffering what is yes. pain what is what is loss you know exactly uh, and and then the new testament flips that upside down right especially and say oh, of course. you know count count everything uh, everything that is loss as gain
0: <laughs> exactly <laughs> wait a minute how does that work a, to be a creature means you are dependent upon your creator my 8 week old daughter is dependent upon us for life excuse me for a second <clears throat> oh, I'm dry in here today I am drinking Mexican LaCroix today. I'm oh. very provincial. Oh, Non provincial, sorry. I think
1: I had that at your house.
0: LaCroix curate, or as I call it, LaCroix karate. Nice. Um, this is cherry lemon. It's so delicious. It's in these skinny little cans, it's very sexy. But this is what we do. And as you pointed out, to be like God knowing good and evil, what does that look like practically speaking? Well, I survey the landscape. And I listen to what's happening around me, what the conversation may be. And then I start saying, you know what? You're right. Where was God when this happened? Why would God let this happen? Yeah. And the root of this is that we, we're we not satisfied being creatures. We want to be the captain of our own destiny. And the problem is, um, as we were reading in First John, or as we were reading in the first chapter of John last night in Bible study, John the baptizer says what? Before me he was he who comes before me comes after me yeah. and he's speaking in chronological time so he's saying chronologically speaking the dude who is actually the messiah was before me in time and he's after me in time because for god all time is now which is helpful for us as creatures that god can see all of time and space simultaneously yeah and it's a mind blower but abraham is sacrificing isaac right now as we're having this conversation about the hidden God, Jesus is dying on the cross right now. God is creating the universe right now. He's raising you from the dead right now because all time is wrapped up in God now. This is called kairotic or kairos time. And yet because we are creatures, we exist in chronological time. And God being gracious and loving enters into chronological time for us so that God now has a birthday and a death day because he is like us in every way and yet without sin which is why, as Hebrews says, he is able to sympathize with us in all of our temptations and struggles. Yeah. And yet, even when that is said, that Jesus is with us in our temptation and struggle, and that he can sympathize with us in every way because he suffered as we suffered, he, he traveled down the birth canal in the same way that my child does and I did. He eats the same foods that I eat. He sleeps and dreams the same dreams that I dream because he's a man. And... This is a key point too. We love to try and separate Jesus's divinity from his humanity. We love it. Uh, why? Because we want to be God.
1: Hence the, uh, hence the medieval myth of uh, clauso utero,
0: right? Right. Exactly. Jesus exactly. was born
1: miraculously, passing through the the, the uterine
0: wall without any. Uh, Exit wound. Right. That's, that's just a <laughs> whole bunch of single men with too much free time on their hands. <laughs> well, who have never attended a birth either. <laughs> and never Exactly. Never seen a witnessed a birth, never been there. Exactly. It's just, again, just fairy tale nonsense. It's science fiction. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Because <laughs> it's kind, it's kind <laughs> of like an alien, except, except not as ugly. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So this is what, what uh, Dr. Kolb is saying, is that without the admission that there's more to God than meets the eye we can we can tame god we can bring him down to our level we can manage him and we were talking about this in the context of john last night the first chapter of john john sets you up from the very first chapter with the knowledge that whoever jesus is he is completely beyond the scope of you trying to be trying to domesticate him
2: mm-hmm.
0: he will not be domesticated because john the baptizer foreshadows that because they come out to john the baptizer and ask why are you doing this yeah
1: like, yeah, and they try to, And they try to limit John, right? Uh, right, exactly. You must be, okay, well, a prophet, uh, Elijah, something. Right. But we got to de- get you defined. We got to understand
0: you. <laughs> What's really wild, and I didn't, really didn't notice this before, is that the Levites were sent by the Pharisees to ask John these questions.
1: Yeah, isn't that something? The collusion the of those Levites.
0: two? Well, just the fact that the Levites are getting ordered around by the Pharisees. The, mm. the Levites were established by God. The Pharisees are just local pastors for all intents and purposes. How do you go into Jerusalem as a Pharisee and go, yo, high priest, come here. I need you to do something for me because uh, John's out there at the Jordan River causing trouble. And by the way, as one woman asked, wasn't John the baptizer's dad, the high priest that year? <laughs> wasn't he serving in the temple? How do, what did his parents think about him living on the other side of the Jordan, hanging out in caves with, with these ascetics? What, what do the religious leaders think that people aren't showing up f- uh, for the Sabbath on Sunday and buying the sacrifices?
1: I'd like to believe that John's parents were, were pious enough to just... Uh,
0: <laughs> they're like,
1: yeah, he's wild and crazy, but, you know, God talked to us. and
0: Yeah, that's right. God told us. Just like when God talked to Mary and then Mary came to bring Jesus home. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> no. I, I don't think that his parents were proud of him. But that's my side of the tracks. I think we're our piety is showing now. But... Uh, this is the problem: is that they not only trying to they're not only trying to like tame John, but they're also trying to domesticate Jesus. Mm-hmm. This is why Nicodemus comes in the night and goes, "Hey, got some questions for you." <laughs> and why, when Jesus in John chapter six says, "Eat my body and drink my flesh, or there's no life in you," and the religious leaders all gasp. Yeah, and they're going to stone <sighs> him. Right, that he he refuses to be domesticated, and I hear this lots of times from pastors that. Well, Jesus never broke the law and Jesus wasn't an outlaw and he wasn't. A, he, no, you're right. He wasn't an outlaw. He never broke the law because he's the one who gave them the law. He's the author of the law. The problem is that he will not be tamed. Yeah, he was received <laughs> as an outlaw. That's why they killed yes, him. Yes, exactly. And that he wasn't outside the law. Everybody else was. Mm-hmm. And to those who are inside the law, you do appear unlawful. You do appear to be an outlaw. Yeah, the perfect because law you're free. of freedom, right? Yeah, the perfect law of freedom. You are actually free. And Jesus's freedom is the thing that, like you said, gets him killed in the end. They worship the hidden God. And then when God shows himself, reveals himself to them, they reject him.
1: To be a friend of sinners, especially.
0: Exactly. I think we talked about this in the um, Vieth podcast, that if you saw me sitting in the park at a picnic bench with a whole bunch of prostitutes, there's only one of two conclusions you're going to draw from that. And if you know me, probably just one. Yeah, it was like that
1: one <laughs> cleric who uh, who died on the steps of a brothel. And so the assumption, of course,
0: is that he frequented the brothel. Um, yes.
1: Is it not possible he was ministering to them too?
0: Exactly. But there again, to the, to the pure, all things are pure. And to sinners, we draw our own conclusions. So... You can't, if you engage in theodicy, you've lost Jesus, you've lost grace, you've lost everything. Hmm. So this is what Dr. Cole warns us about via Luther. So to continue then, from the human perspective, God remains God because human creatures are creatures as well as sinners. And it is not possible for the product of God's creative words to master knowledge of the creator. This is what we do. We are creatures of God.
1: It's however, not, in other words, so it's not possible for the creature to to master the creator right exactly to to uh, get to
0: the bottom of it <laughs> to to use paul's language the pot the the, the pot can't say to the potter I, w- I would rather have preferred you made me into a plate, yeah, right, yeah, or to be very specific and provocative, it's to say to your creator, "I think I was born a woman, yeah,
1: I was going to say you re remake yourself and whatever right.
0: Now, to be sympathetic to that, because I do have that conversation, I do minister to people who struggle with this -hmm. this conversation, this question. I don't know what sin has done to you that has caused you to say this. Yeah. Because that's how... Paul says that sin is so deep, we don't even understand our own actions. Like the profundity of the the power of sin over us is so deep, we don't even understand our own actions. So in the same way that I can't understand God, I can't even understand my own sinfulness. And so I'm not going to say outright to a person who says, well, I was born a man, but I'm, I want to be, a, I, I should have been a woman. I don't understand the 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 consequences of sin for you. And I also don't understand how God created you. All I know is you're here in front of me and you're a creature of God and you're a sinner. You need Jesus. So yeah, what's yeah. getting in the way of you enjoying your salvation in Christ? And if, you're, if your identity is tied up in your gender, then yeah, we have a problem. Because your gender isn't your identity. Jesus is your identity.
1: Well, it's just and like so we we're, were talking about, we're talking about with the pastor, you know, who retires and then somehow now like is lost because they right. <laughs> they bounce exactly. so much of themselves up in this vocation, right? But it isn't it isn't the defining um, right. It isn't their defining purpose or anything like that.
0: Right. And don't go running to your blog and say Riley affirms transsexuals or transgender people. I'm not. What I'm saying is, empathize with all people. Mm-hmm. We're all sinners we're all creatures of God. Jesus died for the sins of all people, the whole world. And you don't have to be a complete jerk to people just because you don't understand what they're struggling with and it makes you uncomfortable or you, or worse, you think you've got the right answer.
1: Or that you can even understand.
0: Or um, that you can even understand it. Right. I, I talk to people all the time about this, That not all the time, but I talk to people about this, is that as an alcoholic, I don't expect non-alcoholics to really understand what it is to be tempted by alcohol in the way that I'm tempted by alcohol. Mm-hmm. All I ask is that you sympathize and understand that when I say I can't meet with you right now because I need to go to a sobriety meeting, I'm not blowing you off. I actually have to go to a sobriety meeting because this is something I have to take care of so I can love my neighbor Yeah, that's, and show up at the meeting for you. That's your, your habit, discipline, you know. Exactly. Exactly. It's the discipline of it. You're setting that, like- You're
1: setting those barriers like you do with your children.
0: Exactly. Mm -hmm. And within the barriers, within the the boundaries of sobriety, I am free. Mm -hmm. I'm free to love my neighbor. I'm free to reset the schedule of the meeting. I'm free to do all these things. When I jump the boundary, when I trespass the boundary and I use, now I'm not free anymore. And all I'm saying then is pastorally as Christian brothers and sisters, don't jump to judgment. Again, ask the question, what what has cut you off from your baptismal promise? what has cut you loose from the first commandment that you're not enjoying your freedom that you have in Christ through the forgiveness of sins? Because your gender identity, just as much as worshiping God in nature or demanding that God justify his decisions to you, it's all in the same mix, Yeah, which is we assume that because we think we have the answer or we believe we've got the right answer, we, we speak for God.
1: Is there also a truth that we... Uh, in the same way, we try to what did Cobbs say? Tame, measure, manage God right. within our ability and possibility yeah. uh, to judge. That we do the same with people, right? Of course. That we of course. we like. Oh, I don't know. That there's like a a cure all, you know, for a particular you know sinful behavior. Like if only yeah. you did, we did this, it's going to work, and it's going to
0: work in every, work right. in every case. You're like right? No, no every, that's a, a, everybody's unique. But, <laughs> but we we love to think that way, yeah, because we love to judge, not because. There's any reward in it for us, except for the fact that I am elevating myself above you by judging you. Right. Now, I will will qualify that by saying, as a pastor, I was given two keys, not one key, Mm. to lock and to loose. Mm -hmm. And that I also don't just run around as a pastor forgiving everybody without hearing their confession. Mm -hmm. Even though sometimes if they're being overly pietistic, I will forgive them on purpose to bust them on the fact that they think God will only forgive them if... But, dude, one of my favorite people to roll with in jujitsu is the lead singer in a death metal band. Awesome. It's like just just standing next to him at the gym makes me laugh out loud. Because I'm just like, dude, if pe- if people could see the two of us together, he's like, oh, I know. I know. If the people that I hang out with saw us together, he'd be like, dude, what are you doing? Does, does he growl at you like while you're? Yeah, I should I should do that. I'll tease Matthias next time about that. If you could just give me a real throaty growl when you when you tap, that'd be great. <laughs> but this, if I were to judge him, I would reinforce every stereotype and caricature he has of Christians. Yeah. Versus, he knows me as a righteous man mm-hmm. in a horizontal sense because I don't judge him. Yeah, and yet I don't have to judge him because he knows he's the least singer in a death metal band who's an atheist. I'm a Lutheran pastor. Obviously we have a few things we disagree on, Mm -hmm. but within the context of training, we're in complete agreement. This is why we're here. This is why we're doing it. And maybe the Holy spirit works through that to bring him to faith. Who knows? So that's, that's what Kolb was after. That's what we're talking about is, is to, to think that God is bound within the context of our abilities and our, our possibilities to see, to measure, to manage, to tame God, is to make God an idol. It's to mm-hmm. make ourselves God, essentially. Yeah,
1: and it can be in a kind of a positive sense too, where people say, "Well, clearly God was at work here."
0: Oh, uh, well, of course, exactly. Well, of course, right. he if was. The atheist at work came here. to your church on Sunday. Obviously, God was at work. Yeah, well, of course he what was. He, but but is he but not at work when he doesn't come back? to church too? Exactly. Yeah. If the atheist doesn't come back. Is God still at work? <laughs> you know, it's dangerous territory. It's thin ice. So we continue. In the Heidelberg Disputation, Luther had focused first on the blank wall created by the impossibility of the human creatures, to say nothing of sinners, conceptualizing of God, just to prove that with fallen eyes, no one can see God. So in the Heidelberg Disputation, Luther focuses on a blank wall. (laughs) And what is that blank wall? Why is that blank wall there? It's created by the impossibility of us To conceptualize God, and prove that I can see God, like diagram, right? Yeah, like it's a Venn diagram. Organize, right? You know, it's like, well, let's give God a personality test. Is he an introvert? Is he an intro uh, extrovert? Where does he fall on the chart? (laughs) That's right. That's right. INTJ a, is Jesus gonna, an INTJ? Yeah, I was
1: going to go P, but whatever.
0: <laughs> yeah, he might be.
1: Clearly introvert. I mean, he's hanging out in the boat, he's trying to that's find right, a quiet exactly. place to pray. I mean, <laughs> That's
0: right. Just leave me alone. Just just let me sleep. <laughs> that's right. God does not like extroverts.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Which is horrible news for me. But I think he was very uh, so, perceptive yeah. though and not as judgy. So, there that's you go. why I went with P. So this is what Luther first focuses on in the Heidelberg Disputation. This is why he starts off the first thesis by saying the law, the most salutary doctrine of life, cannot advance man on his way to salvation, but rather obstructs him, hinders him. The blank wall is we use the law to try and get a hold of God and then go, oh, he's right over there. (laughs) The problem is, is that we see God through sinful eyes and no amount of washing with baptismal water is going to (laughs) <laughs> pull those scales off your eyes to the extent that you can see God in His naked majesty. And by the way, you don't want to see God naked because, according to Exodus, He will kill you.
1: Yeah, to that's, see, the, that's s- the radiation right there.
0: There it is. There's that nuclear radiation. That if you look at God uh, apart from some sort of intermediary, some mm-hmm. sort of go-between, you will be disintegrated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no one can see, no one can look upon the glory of God and live. That's face off right there. Exactly. ha. <laughs> Deep reference. With fallen human ears, no one can return to the Edenic hearing of his word. So stop singing in the garden. (laughs) Hmm. It's not a Lutheran hymn. It's not even really a Christian hymn. It's just a really, really sappy, pappy, romanticized hymn. In fact, if you sing the hymn at church on Sunday, yell, bring out the craggle, okay? (laughs) because it's a bunch of hippie dippy baloney
1: it's kind of it's kind of like uh in holy grail and they're trying to get to the trying to get back to camelot and and they have to they sing the song you know and like oh
0: it's a silly place let's not go there (laughs) that's right exactly it's not quite what we remembered (laughs) that's right so don't don't trust your eyes don't trust your ears don't trust your senses especially don't trust what you feel Hmm. then Kolb continues, Then Luker, Luke, Luker, Luther filthy Luker, then Luther. Then focused very sharply on God in his revelation of himself. John 1.18 No one has seen God but Jesus of Nazareth, God in the flesh, has made him known. A God with holes in his hands, feet, and side. The God who has come near to humankind into the midst of its twisted and ruined existence. Why do we want to domesticate and tame God? Because our existence is twisted and ruined. Right? Like we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast, they dug that battery out, that Iraqi battery. They dug that out of the dirt and went, wait a minute, this looks an awfully lot like a battery. <laughs> but that's not possible. They didn't have batteries back then. Well, unfortunately, the Baghdad battery says maybe they did.
1: Or it's also like uh, the uh, discovery, I think it was last year, maybe the year before, of uh, the architects of the Great Pyramid. Um, they they found the actual documentation as to how they moved yeah. the stone and which quarries they came from and the whole deal. How did we build the pyramids? Here it is, and yet yeah. that story is buried because we don't actually want to believe that it was.
0: It's possible we went this right crazy. Well, now there's now they argue that thing. it wasn't slaves who built the pyramids. They were all artisans because the way that the rocks were cut and how fast they. I'm like, dude. That may be, and they, I guess they've excavated the camps around the, mm-hmm. the, and so they found the kind of food they ate and everything, and they're like, this isn't the kind of food they fed slaves at the time, blah, blah, blah. Or maybe they fed like, the like slaves as well. Said. Yeah, exactly. That's why I said too. I'm like, well, if you want to keep these people alive, because, well, you've got to move several hundred tons of rock. Mm-hmm. And it takes <laughs> at least 30 people per rock. <laughs> right. And so, yeah, it's, it's great to speculate, and it's great to play detective, and we love a good mystery, of course. This is what we're talking about right now. But in the end, that's all it is, is it's a mystery that won't be revealed until the end. And so everything, unless it's just bald truth, we have to take it with a grain of salt and say, that's a great theory. And you certainly have a lot of facts to back it up, but you can't really prove that definitively yet. Hmm. But maybe someday we do dig up those tablets that say, this is how it was done. And here's the primary source, and it's definitive now. But a lot of stuff's buried under the earth. Yeah, sure. Maybe Google can help us.
1: Uh Yeah. Well, and archaeology is crazy now because they can, yeah, um, they can just use
0: their their pulse scanner thing. Right, exactly. and they don't even have to dig. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic.
1: That's pretty awesome.
0: Like that that Incan village or Mayan village that they found that mm-hmm. they thought was a myth, and then all of a sudden they found it. And that the city that they found off the coast of Portugal that they think is Atlantis. Yeah, just satellite Same imagery and, and right. doing topography. You know, just ocean fast topography. And, and yeah. again, it's fun to talk about. It's provocative. It's titillating. It's it's just fun. But don't hang your hat on it. Right. And so to prove that with fallen, again, no one can see God. And so even when we, like I said at the beginning of this, even if we think we've got God on the hook, Hmm. at best we're flicking his earlobe, at best. And really think seriously, do you really want to approach God in such a way that you say, show me the money? Yeah. You know, reveal yourself to me, all of yourself. Do you really want that? That's why I kind of
1: never really uh i don't know responded well to the to the the whole answers in genesis project like like mm-hmm. we can we can get our head around the idea we can I mean, we can prove with evidence or whatever that god created the heavens and the earth in six days and yeah. rested on the seventh and or or the flood you know that it actually happened and sure right. i mean there's i think there's i think there's plenty of evidence that there was a worldwide flood fine yeah. uh, but what does that actually where does that get us Oh, that God isn't a liar? Okay, that's helpful. Right. (laughs) Right. But I mean, that's about it. Right. Um, You know, that the the
0: scriptures are true, uh, I suppose. Well, looking at it a different way too, um, I have a friend, really good friend of mine. He believes the earth is flat. Mm. I don't. (laughs) I argue from physics. He argues from conspiracy theories. Mm. Okay. Now, in the end, I simply ask, what does it matter? If the earth is flat, if the earth is round, if the earth right. is pear-shaped. If the earth has lizard men that live at the center of of, of this. Cool. Uh, I know, right? Slee stacks. But what does it really matter in the end? How do you spell that? Slee stack? <laughs> you going to make me spell slee stack? Just text Land of the Lost. S L E E S T A K. I don't know. Land now of the I'm gonna Lost. I'm going to look. I'm going to look. I'm oh look yeah, now. no, that's right. That's Did right. I nail it? Yes. <laughs> vite soit, Vite soi. I nailed it. Oh, the reptilian creature. And yet I cannot from. remember a person's name who's attended my church for two and a half years.
1: Uh. <laughs> that is incredible.
0: By the way, um, go watch the movie Victory starring Sylvester Stallone and all of the greatest soccer players in the, of their generation. That movie is Awesome. That's where I get that from, that Vitois, Vitois, because at the end of the movie, they chant Vitois. It's about World War II where the Nazis have to play soccer against these POWs who also just turn out to be the most... And they actually are the actual soccer players. So Pele's in the movie. And uh, they launch this huge prison. They're going to escape. And oh, Victory is an awesome movie. Awesome. Go find it. All right. Point being... All of this stuff is the worldwide flood, seven day or six day creation. All these things are great. But if we hang our hat on, well, what can I see? What can I measure? Mm -hmm. We're forgetting our limitations. What does this prove? Exactly. Hmm. And how does it change your life? What does this tell us about God? (laughs) I understand mitochondria probably more than the regular person because I'm fascinated by it and I study it. But in the end, if it doesn't change the way that I eat, who cares? (laughs) (laughs) You know? I mean... That's that's the thing I think that is most fascinating to me about humanity in general is we love trivia. We love it, we love to argue about trivia, and yet it doesn't change anything in the end. Hmm. Because we don't want to take responsibility or accept consequences for the you know, Antarctica being a secret base where the governments are plotting the new world order, blah oh. blah blah. Oh. I know, right? I can go deep on conspiracy theories. That's what I watch when I'm bored. I love watching YouTube videos about conspiracies because they're just, I mean, there's a grain of truth to all of them, but they're just fascinating to me that people can go so deep to think that the president is a lizard person, right? And the proof is when they move fast, they—they—they—they their they, they, form shifts, right? Oh, right. To which I, I say, you do understand how video works, right? You understand how video works? <laughs> like <laughs> That when someone moves really fast on a on a cheap video feed or a bad video feed, there's streaking, there's trailers, there's yeah. trails, you know? And yet I always ask the question, okay, let's say that President Trump's a lizard man. How does that change anything about your life? He's not going to come to your house and make you a sandwich. So what do you care? Pray so for it, him, if anything. Is it escape to victory or just straight up victory? I think it's just victory. Starring Sylvester Stallone. Yeah, I see it. Okay. It's like he made a whole bunch of really small movies in the 70s after Rocky, like Nighthawk, Nighthawks with uh, Rucker Hauer and Billy, I think Billy D. Williams. But like Nighthawks is a an awesome movie. Victory is an awesome movie, but no one's ever seen them because they're smaller movies. Huh. And he actually acts in those movies. And, you know, it's Sylvester Stallone, but it's this pre-Rambo, pre-80s steroid coke cocaine binge i'm you know <laughs> yeah i'm super important guy i mean you just go watch cobra and you're like wow this guy thinks he's super important
1: <laughs> well but, or now uh, the uh what are those freak show movies expendables from- yeah the Expendables yeah. series parodies of parodies of parodies
0: right exactly and uh, you know actually that's a that's a a great way probably to tie off the bow on this episode is mm-hmm. when you live in a, a, a we live a twisted and ruined existence because we're sinful and when we try and domesticate god or stand in the place of god we become a parody of a parody of a parody because we become a parody of a human being because we're not we're trying to ape god we're trying to reject our own being you know our own creatureliness we're, we're rejecting our own humanity and we're doing a really cut rate version of God.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So we become a parody of a self-parody of a parody. So that not only do we not not only are we not human now, but we're less human. We're dehumanizing ourselves at the same time by de-deifying or undeifying God.
2: Yeah.
0: Rather than just saying everything that you need to know about God is located in the person of Jesus Christ. And anything outside of Jesus. You can speculate, you can make a guess, and maybe it's a good guess, but that's all it is. It's a guess. So cling to your baptism, cling to the body and blood of Jesus, cling to the, the gospel preached to you by your pastor, and enjoy the mystery of it. Yeah. That's why I teach my kids. I don't understand how the body and blood of Jesus are present under the bread and wine. It's a mystery. But I do know at the last, at the last day, it won't matter anymore.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> and so, so why let's... do I care about it in the present tense?
1: Well, let's have a little fun.
0: Exactly. You know, have fun delight and, in the uh, text att- exactly delight in the fact that you get to kneel and receive the body and blood of jesus while the world goes you know it's just bread and wine right
2: mm-hmm.
0: and go yeah i know it's amazing <laughs> god actually works in god my god actually works in creation not not stand not standing outside of it Yep. so yeah uh thank you for uh listening Thank you for being a part of uh, the podcast. Leave uh, your comments. Subscribe to the podcast, please. We appreciate it. Uh, we are as Lutheran as it gets, so we do technically need to be the most popular Lutheran podcast in the world. Otherwise, I think so. it's kind of fa- yeah, it's so. falsity in advertising without that. So, subscribe. Tell your friends and family to subscribe. Uh, leave positive comments. Yeah. Favorite comic book writer. Favorite comic book artist. Favorite comic book series. Tell me what you've been playing video game wise lately. And I'd also like to bring up at the end of this, for those of you who are still with us at the 9.5 <laughs> mile of this 10K run, um, that uh, Pastor Gillespie and I, because we do go off on a lot of tangents, we get very meta. And I know some of you are like, oh, he's going to talk about jujitsu or Muay Thai or martial arts. Again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can't not. So I'm sorry. Um, oh, no, I don't apologize. I'm, I'm not sorry for, for talking right. about stuff are you that I love. apologizing for? Yeah. We're just talking to each other. If you're listening... Hey, welcome. But if you're not listening, we're still going to be talking to each other like this. (laughs) But anyways, we are going to start another short form podcast called As Tangential As It Gets, or As Meta As It Gets. We haven't really cemented the the title, but it's going to be a shorter form podcast, maybe 20, 30 minutes, maybe an hour. Maybe, Maybe. Maybe. All right. Tongue planted firmly in cheek. We're going to try and keep it short. But that's going to be more us talking about the meta stuff, movies, music, video games, pop culture references, stuff like that. And we will, obviously, since we're Christians, obviously, since we're pastors, we can't just leave our faith at the door. So that would be a part of it. But I would love to talk more about, for example, Star Wars, right? The, the um, Last Jedi. And talk about not only just in the context of, uh, as a fan of sci-fi fantasy, and I would qualify Star Wars as fantasy, not science fiction. Yeah, but same here. To have a conversation about that without having to come back to the theological text, but also have a conversation about The Last Jedi in the context of, as a Christian, Although The, the Last Gospel.
1: Jedi definitely had more sci fi than
0: previous That is true. I will give with that. Films. And yet, I strongly, strongly dislike that movie. Others, like Pastor Eric Brown, like the movie, but he also has no taste. And uh, so I liked it we too. Loved it. And you did like it. So I, I and Pastor Gillespie would like to have that conversation too and kind of be freed from the theological text so that we can have a, a pop culture conversation because we're both pop culture nerds. And we don't want to cheat you where you're sitting there going, When are they gonna get to, when are they gonna to get to the theology? And we also we just talk... wanna rationalize all of our consumption of pop culture. A hundred percent. It gives me a justification when Annie says to me, What are you doing? I'm I'm doing research for the podcast. That's right. I'm and preparing she... for the show. That's right. It looks like I you're don't. watching Stranger Things. Exactly. Yeah, exactly so nothing's out of bounds as far as pop culture goes I want to talk about H.P. Lovecraft Jules Verne H.G. Wells and how he predicted so many things that happened today oh man Uh, I have to do a lot of research you know and uh, so stay tuned for that that'll be coming in the near future and uh, like I said thanks for listening and uh, I hope we pass the audition see ya
1: you like what you're listening to higher things podcasts are free for you but they aren't free to
0: produce please consider supporting the higher things podcasts as lutheran as it gets gospeled boldly and the black cloister check out www.higherthings.org support for more information thank you for listening and thank you for your support